Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. I'm here with Trip Adler, the founder of mega website Scribd. Trip, you also were, you're like a little baby, right? You're like 30 years old. Um, yes, I am 30. I I thought I was getting um, older for Silicon Valley standards. Um, that that but, could be. Uh, like, uh, like when you turned 30, did you like I'm glad get you depressed? think I'm still young, so that's good. The, well... Well, at least you've kind of you've you've kind of semi made it by thirty, right? Like you're you've got a, a a website that gets how many how many page views does your website get a year? Uh, we reach about uh, ninety five million monthly uniques. So so about a so, billion a year, a little more than a billion a year. Something like that, yeah. And so, um, yeah. I just want to do full disclosure. Your site, uh, it. it you have your site does many things. First of all, it's it's like you initially described it as a YouTube for documents. People can upload documents to the site, and all their friends can look at it, and and so on. But also, you have a subscription package where people could read up to five hundred thousand books for just like eight ninety five a month, something like that, right? Yeah. Well, when we started the company in two thousand seven, it was a, a publishing platform for books and documents and other kinds of written content. And um, over time, we, we realized that the main thing our publishers wanted was a, was a better source of revenue. And uh, a couple years ago, we realized that subscription was really the best way to, to monetize their content. So that was how we kind of evolved into a book subscription service. And, and yes, now for $8.99 per month, we offer um, over 500,000 professionally published books, um, as well as our full library of user-generated content that we've accumulated since 2007, which is now at about uh, 61 million documents. 61 million documents of all sorts. Yep. Like I noticed people upload legal documents, government documents, college essays, everything. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of stuff. It's, it's, it's really one of the, the broadest uh, and just largest uh, libraries of content on the Internet. And did you have another company before this or anything, or is this your first startup? Uh, no, it's my first company. Started uh, just as I was finishing school. So, and, um, and how did you come job. up? How did you come up with this idea? I mean, I know already, but I wanted to. I wanted you to tell us. Um, yeah, well, well, this idea. So uh, I was having a conversation with my dad, who's a, a doctor at Stanford, and um, he had a uh, a paper that he he wanted to get published and. He was complaining to me how the medical publishing process takes about 18 months to get a paper published. And, um, and you know, uh, my, my co-founder and I thought that was kind of, uh, kind of silly because we figured, well, we can just take this paper and publish it in, like, you know, a few seconds on the web. So, so that inspired this idea to create a website where we can allow him to take his paper, publish it on the web, share it with his colleagues. And, um, and we decided pretty, from pretty early on to, to broaden the concept beyond just scientific papers to include, you know, our school papers, to include people's books, to include PowerPoint presentations, legal documents, um, you know, all that, those types of content that, that you just mentioned. So, 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 uh, and I want to, um, uh, provide full disclosure first. So I subscribe, sure. I pay the eight ninety nine a month and I read books, uh, on Scribd. I'm currently reading Stephen King's on writing on, on Scribd. Great, uh, cool. I'm Good also at full disclosure. I'm also a small investor in your company. Uh, yep. I think you already knew that. Um, yep. and, uh, 
Uh, but I'm going to drill down. Like we're going to we're going to go through some fire here in a second. Is that okay? Uh, sure. Sounds like fun. So 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 the first thing is uh, obviously it's great that you're that people could publish their papers and stuff on script. You know your initial idea, but couldn't people just publish anyway on their own on like a WordPress site or whatever when when you started? Um. Well, well, when we started, the landscape was was pretty different. I mean, I can talk about how it was when we started or how it is now. Um, I mean, really, I'd say the difference now in our site as a publishing platform is, um, is you know, we're focused on more um, long-form and heavily formatted content. Um, so when you publish on our site, um, it, it's typically by taking a, a previously written document, usually is like a Word file, a PDF file, a PowerPoint, um, and then and then we've built a very slick HTML5 viewer that will will take that document and preserve the formatting in a web browser. Um, so so we're focused on a very different type of content than WordPress or Tumblr or any of those other self-publishing platforms. Um, and then we've also put a lot of work into the, the distribution and monetization of that content. So, you know, we, we do a lot to make your content indexed by Google. Uh, we provide tools that allow people to really easily share the content. They can embed the documents on, on their WordPress or on their, their Tumblr, just like uh, you'd embed a YouTube video. Um, and then we also now have the monetization piece where you can, you can, you can sell your, your written work or monetize it via subscription. So I can, like, uh, write a book and sell it through your platform. Yes, and and pretty soon you'll be able to to do that via subscription too. Okay, so 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 reeling it back to the beginning, how did you? Uh, so you built this site. Uh, how did you first get users? How did you first get funding? Um, what happened? Like, how, yeah, like if an entrepreneur, well, like like in entrepreneurial terms, like sure. many people have ideas, but they're unable to execute. How did you kind of get it done? Yeah, well, let's see. It was it was a long and bumpy path. So, uh, so started out. Um, I met my my co-founder at uh, at Harvard and uh, my co-founder Jared, and and we started. Uh, um, you know, I, I had this one idea for a company. Uh, it was a, a totally different idea. Um, it, it turned out, in retrospect, to be a very good idea. It was basically the idea for Uber, uh, but I was just like uh, a few years too early. Um, so, um, you know, ha having an idea too early is, is really, uh, it's just, as, it's just as bad as not having, um, having any idea at all. Uh, but it turns out that idea is a little bit too early. And, uh, we, uh, we applied to Y Combinator with that idea. Um, and that was actually, um, that was back in 2006. So that was, uh, the second Y Combinator class. Um, and, uh, we, we, we met with Paul Graham in Boston, uh, applied with that idea, Paul didn't like that idea, um, can encourage us to switch to a, a different idea. So we tried a totally different idea over the, over the summer at Y Combinator. Um, and then we went through several other ideas before even getting to Scribd. So it was, we, we spent a good year, year, year and a half iterating on different startup ideas using our $12,000 of Y Combinator funding uh, before Scribd even, even came along. So you were living off the Y Combinator funding more or less? Yeah, we're just living in an apartment in Boston, uh, living off our twelve thousand dollars. So, um, so, so I mean, that was really the um, kind of the, the the earliest phase of the company. So then, so then Scrib came along. You know, after trying and failing a bunch of these different ideas, um, we we had this idea through Scrib for Scribd, and uh, and basically we we started doing two things in parallel. We started building the site, and we started uh, promoting it to users. Um, and, and I think it was, it was a really, um, you know, important to do those two things in parallel. I mean, we really started with an MVP. I mean, the first iteration of the product just let you took, uh, take, take a document and put it on the web. And it was, it was that simple. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we um, just started promoting it to users, uh, you know, finding anyone in the Internet who would use it. Um, and we got the site to be about, uh, about have about 100 people actually publishing content. Um, we, can, can, we can had, I ask of uh, those hundred people, how many did you know or personally invite to publish to like, I'm just trying to figure out when you, when it started getting kind of organic growth on its own and, and nothing wrong yep, with manual yep. growth. I'm just curious about this. Yeah. So I'm, I'm about to, I'm about to get to the story of how it kind of took off organically. Um, so, so basically we, we, we built this, uh, you know, mo most of these users are actually people who we just found on the internet who were trying to publish writing in some way, and we emailed them and encouraged them to use the site. So we were, we were basically just picking off internet users one by one and, and encouraging them to use, to use Scribd. Um, and what's an example? And, uh, what, what's that? What's an example of a guy that you call? Uh, 
So, uh, so I remember we would see uh, someone. So there was a site back then called uh, Lulu that people were using uh, to, to, to self-publish books. Um, so we'd find one of those uh, those authors and say, "Hey, we have you know not, not even really an alternative to Lulu, but just another another channel for publishing a a document on on the web. Why don't you try using it?" Um, and uh, and you know probably for one in ten people we emailed, they'd actually upload the they actually upload something and that kind of got the initial 100 users going i think this is a very important point because i think a lot of people make the mistake of building a site and then they think they're going to flip it on and then the servers are going to crash the next day because the site's so popular but you actually went out and kind of by hand sought out users and worked really hard to build up those initial users Oh yeah, it was an extremely tedious process. Uh, it took just a lot of a lot of hours, um, but but it ended up being um, really important. And the reason was that uh, after doing that for a few months, we had we had an actual product that was working. We had actu- an actual um, you know hundred people using the site. Um, that 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 content they were uploading actually started driving traffic. So we felt just starting to take off organically. So we were feeling that organic tipping point coming, um, and then we decided to publicly launch. And at that point, we, we went to TechCrunch, and TechCrunch wrote a story about what we were doing. Uh, that story then got picked up by, um, I was on the homepage of Dig and Reddit, so Dig was actually the big one back then. And, uh, and at that point, it just completely exploded. Uh, we went from, you know, from a really tiny site to one of the top 1,500 websites on the Internet pretty much overnight. Um, and, I, and I think that the, the fact that it took off so quickly w- was in part due to the fact that we had actually kind of built it out. We had people using it. There was an actual community there when, when it actually launched. Um, and, and then at that point, we had so much traction that a lot of those people came to check out the site, uploaded their own content. That content they uploaded then started getting traffic on its own. Um, and then some small percentage of that traffic would then upload their own content, which created this loop that just allowed us to keep growing. Um, so from that point on, we, we just started, you know, doubling in size every six months or so. Um, and we're still growing at almost that, at that rate. So not counting the, um, books and subscription stuff, are people still, uh, do you, are you still seeing the same growth rate on people uploading, uh, documents? Yeah, so it's, it's obviously, uh, slowed down a bit, but we're still growing it, but, uh, the, the uploads between 50 and hundred percent per year. So oh, that's um, great. So yeah, so that 60 million um, uh, quality contributed documents is still continuing to grow quite nicely. And uh, you know, I I would say your main competitor in the in that space is SlideShare. Would you say? Uh, yeah, SlideShare, and then another one called DocStock. I mean, DocStock has changed a bit over time, but but yeah, probably SlideShare. Okay, so DocStock just got sold, right? They have Jason Nazar was the CEO. Exactly, yeah. And SlideShare now is owned by LinkedIn. Um, so, you know, we're, we're similar. We have different focuses. I mean, they're, they're focused uh, more on presentations. We're focused more on long-form written works. Um, so I think over time we've, we've kind of uh, diverged, uh, you know, diverged in focus. But, but yeah, I'd agree we, we do overlap in a few ways. Okay, so now on the publishing stuff. So um, yep. obviously it's great. $8.99, half a million books, give or take. Uh, yep. it's a great bargain as opposed if, if particularly if you're reading more than a couple books a month or even if you're reading more than one book a month. Um, yep. but how do you compete against like, so Kindle, so Amazon just announced Kindle unlimited, um, where mm-hmm. I forget what their price is. It's about the same, give or take a dollar, $10 or nine ninety nine or something. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and they also claim to have about a half a million books available yep. for free. Uh, once you, once you sign up for their Kindle unlimited. Does this kind of um, were you crushed like personally, like emotionally? How did you take that news? Uh, emotionally, I was I was really excited. Um, I I was uh, I was excited that that you know we we had created something that got so important that it got the attention of a big company like Amazon. Um, so I thought of it as a bit of a of a compliment and also just a just a validation of of the space. Um, so, so yeah, so, so basically, so so you know, the way we've we've 
gotten fr- from this this document upload site to this book site is, um, as I was saying before, you know, we we saw all these people publishing content on our site. They really wanted to monetize it better, and um, we realized that we could help them monetize their content. Um, better through subscription, and also build a really terrific experience for readers on our site through subscription. So, so the same thing we built um, a while ago for sharing documents, it, it, it's, um, you know, we've, we've evolved the product to now build both sides of the ecosystem. There's the publishing side, and there's the reader side, and we connect them through subscription. And, um, and we started working on this last year, so we, we took actually a very similar approach to, to what we did um, to what we did in the early days of the company. We actually, uh, we actually soft-launched this book subscription service um, in in January of 2013, um, so just like how we we um, you know we, we soft launched Scrib back in 2007, we did the same thing with book subscriptions, and we um, started to call up publishers by hand. And we got a few small publishers in the service, and we immediately saw traction, just like we did in the early days of the company. Um, and uh, and and that started growing organically, and then we did our public launch in October last year. Um, and, and that kind of really blew up in the same way. I mean, we've seen hockey stick growth ever since. Um, so it's been, um, you know, it's been, we really learned a lot of lessons from those early days of the company. And, um, you know, we've really connected those two pieces of the company really well. But, but, you know, now with Kindle Unlimited, uh, it seems like the big hockey stick for them is the fact that not only are they going to get probably more or less the same publishers as you, but they also have their enormous audience of self-published authors and readers of self-published authors yeah yeah so uh so so coming back to to amazon so um so i mean really we plan to win in this space through through two key strategies um so so the first one is content um and we are very focused on building the uh the biggest the broadest and the deepest library of content to be available uh, via subscription for $8.99 per month. Um, and, I, and, you know, so far, while, while Kindle Unlimited has roughly the same or roughly similar title count to what we have, um, I mean, we do have quite a, quite a bit of a selection of, of publishers that, that are not available there. So, for example, um, two of the big five publishers, um, HarperCollins and Simon Schuster, um, they, they, they both are part of Scripps subscription service, but they're not part of Kindle Unlimited. Um, so there are a lot of publishers that we have that are not in their service, and um, and I think there will be um, a lot more over time. Um, so that's the first the first strategy is just focusing on on content and having these these content relationships that um, Kindle Unlimited and other subscription services don't have. Um, and then the second is really just focusing on user experience and discovery in particular. Um, so really the 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 key um, the key innovation that that we're doing is around the the user experience. Um, for reading books uh, and discovering books, because once when you layer subscription onto onto uh, onto books, people start discovering books in really new ways, and people there's much more fric- less, less friction to starting to read a book, and the result is that that people end up reading more books, they end up browsing more books, and they have a very different discovery experience. So if we can layer on an, an even more enhanced discovery experience through really good algorithmic recommendations, really good editorial recommendations, really good social recommendations, we can create a very differentiated uh, discovery experience for books. So I and, think and that by combining having the biggest library of content with the, the best discovery of books, we can have a very differentiated product in the market. So 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 what you're kind of saying is maybe there's room in the world for both um, Amazon and you to kind of coexist with kind of a different set of books and these subscription models. Because if I'm paying $9.99 there and $8.99 with you and I have exposure to different books and different documents, maybe I'll do that rather than spending $100 a month on books. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we'll definitely coexist. I mean, if you look at other, other spaces like the video space or the music space, I mean, there's, there's definitely a variety of players who are all, all very large. I mean, in music, you have iTunes and Spotify and Pandora and everybody else, and in video you have Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Instant Video, and um, I mean, there's just going to be a number of players in books too. So I mean, I, I don't think this is like a, a necessarily a winner-take-all market, and I think we're going to have uh, different, you know, different approaches to the market. Okay, but but be real honest. When Amazon first announced it, and clearly they were, you could say they were copying you or imitating you or validating the space, but you have uh-huh. to have been nervous a little bit. Um. Deep no, because we were expecting this. I mean, we, I mean, we, we entered the space knowing Amazon would likely compete. So um, it, it wasn't like they caught us completely off guard. And we, we were hearing rumors about this product coming. Um, okay. So, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, they, they, they 
it could have been a much more direct competitor. I mean, they, they didn't have nearly the same content relationships that we have. They didn't have a standalone app for the product. They didn't integrate it with Prime. So there, there could have been a lot of things that would have made it a, a, um, a more direct competitor. Um, so, so again, with them, though, it seems like they, they've been having a real big focus on helping self-published authors. Like, do you see uh, Scribd getting into that space at all? Yeah, well, we kind of already are. So, um, so you know, we, we do let people publish to our site. It's not available. They cannot publish directly to subscription yet, but we do have a self-publishing platform. Um, and we do work with some of the, the, the already built-out self-publishing platforms like Smashwords. So if you want to publish your book to Scribd through subscription, we recommend authors go through Smashwords. And, um, and, and those authors see great success on our site. Um, self-published authors do really well through subscription um, because people are – are reading more through subscription because people are uh, are browsing more. The the distribution to backlist books and to self-published books is much higher than it would be through the traditional retail model. Um, so actually, I think self-published books is actually going to be um, our, our sweet spot in the content space longer term. So we're already seeing a lot of success there, and I, and I think we'll continue to. So so tell me how that works. So let's say I'm going to self-publish a book. I go to Smashwords, uh, upload yep. my book. They put it on a bunch of platforms, including Scribd. And then yep. I can say to Scribd, I want people to pay $8 for this. Or how does it work? Um, so you, you set you set your own price, and then um, we pay you every time the book is read. And and the, the, the price does need to be the same that it is on other retailers. Um, so, so the same price that they're selling it on, iBooks and Barnes and Noble and everywhere else that that will will pay that same price every time someone reads the book. I wonder if like uh, Scribd would be a great platform to launch a newsletter, for instance. So let's say I'm gonna do um, I don't know a newsletter about weight loss. I could uh, make a could, can I make a recurring subscription uh, document on on Scribd? I mean, you can you can upload something monthly. So we definitely have uh, some users uh, using Scribd to publish newsletters. I mean, Scribd has a really wide range of use cases, um, and and that is one of them. So um, so you could definitely do that on Scribd, and and pretty soon you could do it through subscription too. So um, yeah, or you can monetize it via our subscription. So yeah, uh, it, so yeah, the, you, that's definitely a good idea. The the key there is is that I want the um, credit card charged monthly. Um, as opposed to uploading new and then reaching out to my customers every month and saying, "Hey, can you please get the second issue?" You, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. So, like how they normally, how how newsletters normally work. Yeah, I mean, we we don't support that. So, um, I mean, I, I we haven't really, uh, I mean, focused on that as as a vertical in terms of building all out all that functionality. Um, uh, you know, we're more focused on the you know on the the more of the book subscription aspect. But um, I mean, you could technically use Scribd though for that purpose. Yeah, because it seems like that's actually a real interesting business, and and nobody really has done that. No one's really made kind of um, kind of a a, a default newsletter subscription right. service. Yeah, yeah. What about other sites like um, like my kids really love fanfiction.net, where you know kids essentially write fan fiction for all their fa- or kids or adults write fan fiction for all their favorite uh, novels and upload it to this site. And then there's all these message boards and comment systems and everything where people can read all this fan fiction. Have you thought about doing any kind of fan fiction stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think it's another it's another vertical that does really well on on our site. I mean, we we tend to do really well for just fiction in general. So we have a lot of authors contributing fan fiction and a lot of uh, a lot of our you know a lot of community around that. So. Um, so I think I encourage your kids to to check out our fan fiction selection. Okay, I will. And and then there's yeah. also uh, do you see yourself competing with like Wattpad, where um, there's it's it's not like a book at all. Like people upload sort of a chapter a week, and th- some of those stories on Wattpad, I'm surprised by the number of views they get. Some of those writers, and I think they're all kids, get millions of readers. Yeah, I mean, Wattpad's done some really cool stuff, and they've they've done a really good job of of building out a community and and sharing an audience for this for for the things people publish. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, with all these companies, we're we're a bit of an indirect competitor. I mean, I don't I don't really see us uh, all as necessarily competing. I mean, we're we're, we're more each of us are just, just sort of uh, you know focusing on different parts of the ecosystem. Um, but yeah, I mean, Wattpad's also another company in the space. And how many um, how many employees do you have right now? 
we're at about uh, 75. What, what do you see as your biggest challenge as you've kind of grown the employee base in terms of leadership and, and how you, you know, what's changed and what have you learned as, as you've grown the startup? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely learned a lot on that front. Uh, I mean, that, that was definitely one of the, the hardest things to, to figure out um, as, a, as a first-time founder. Um, and, um, I, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's pretty simple. As long as you, you bring in uh, good people and, and build a, a good culture, um, I mean, things kind of, uh, kind of fall into place pretty easily. Um, so, I mean, for me, it's all just been around um, hiring the right team and setting the right culture. And, and as, long as, um, as long as that, um, you know, that, that sort of uh, comes together, I mean, I think uh, things, um, things work out pretty well. And, and how do you, I mean, did you just sort of like luck out that you found the right culture? Like, how did you sort of define that in the beginning? Um, well, I mean, I don't think we necessarily defined it. It's, it's the kind of thing that just evolves organically. Um, and, um, and then, and then as you kind of recognize the things that are working well, you can, you can sort of, um, you know, you know, focus on, on, you know, replicating those things. And I, and I think we're, we're still figuring out our culture. I mean, I think that that's, you know, as the company scales to the next level, I think it's, it's good that we're still kind of defining our culture in these, these, um, early phases of the company so that when we get, we get bigger, we can, we can kind of replicate that culture on a larger scale. And what do you feel has worked? Like what, what leadership skills do you, would you advise like starting entrepreneurs to, to develop? Um, well, uh, Let's see that those are always the hard questions because I'm I'm still learning a lot of these things. Uh, but obviously you've been doing a good job, and it, it, it's oh well, thank you. You're you're six uh, years in the business, like that's a long time now for a startup. I know, I know. We're like uh, uh, we're we're hardly a startup in some ways. We're like I, I like to joke that we're now a big company, but yeah, we're we're still we're still very much a startup. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, I, I mean ultimately you you kind of have to to learn these things on your own. I mean. Um, you know, getting advice is only going to help you so much. I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to learn through experience and through trial and error. Um, you know, I, I think, um, I mean, in our case, uh, you know, I just, we, we just, if you get the right people on board, it, it really makes all the difference in the world. And, um, and, and finding the right people is not, it's not easy. Um, it, it takes a lot of work to find them. And then sometimes you find them and, and you're, you're wrong. So you need to then get new people. And, uh, I mean, it just takes a, a long time to, to get that team in place. And then, and then once you get the team, you then have this challenge of, um, you, you know, you want to empower people and give them as, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, freedom to, to do their jobs, to, to learn on their own, to make mistakes. But at the same time, you want to make sure not to give everyone too much freedom because you want, you want everyone to be working, uh, you know, on a, on a focused vision and, and together in the right way. So, so it's all about, you know, getting the right people and then finding that, that balance in, in how, in how they're managed. And, um, I mean, I've just, uh, kind of learned it through, through, you know, just trial and error and, and I'm, you know, still learning at this phase. What, what was like the worst moment of, of the past six years? It's a good question. Um, yeah, so, so there's a point around, uh, what was it like? 2011 or so, when um, just a lot of things were not working out at the same time. Um, you know, we were in a phase where, um, you know, we were, you know, we were not, we were far from profitable. We were, we were kind of just burning cash at a high rate. Um, the strategy was really just not that clear, I think, and a lot of people, including myself, didn't really believe it that well. Um, and and then on top of that, we didn't have really the right managers in the company to kind of, uh, to get through that phase. Um, and I think just like that, it was just like a lot of things were, were kind of not going right at the same time. Um, and I mean, that was kind of a, a tough situation. Um, but you know, fortunately from there, we, we just got focused on profitability and we got profitable really quickly. I mean, I mean, last year we had a very profitable year. Um, so that worked out really well. We, you know, we run some really good managers who've really helped, uh, you know, run the company and get it focused and get everyone aligned and move the company forward. Um, and, you know, we've evolved the strategy, um, with this new book subscription service, which is going really well and has been, um, you know, really energized the team and, and gotten everyone aligned around one direction. Um, is, is so, the subscription service um, like how you got to profitability? 
uh, uh, no, it really got to profitability just by just by really managing costs. Um, you know, it really is not that that hard to get profitable for us. Um, I mean, I mean, you hear about people talking about it's hard to get profitable. In in our experience, it was just as long as we focused on profitability as opposed to growth, we got profitable pretty quickly. Um, so, so like you start, what was your biggest cost? Like marketing? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, marketing, headcount, uh, and just I think getting kind of kind of sloppy with costs. Um, you know, like like just letting our you know, server costs accumulate over time without, uh, or our hosting costs w- without really um, paying much attention to that. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's 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 just like costs are something you just have to keep an eye on. And you know, a lot of the, a lot of startups will they'll 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 raise a bunch of venture money and they'll be focused on growth and they'll just get kind of uh, careless with costs. Um, but uh, as, as long as you know we kind of pay attention to all the costs and really just focus on controlling them, it, it um, you know that combined with a little bit of modest revenue growth got the company pretty po- profitable pretty quickly. So so with YouTube, like in early, I guess it was early two thousand six, they had that song "Lazy Sunday," which was a, a, a an Andy Samberg uh, skit from Saturday Night Live that mm-hmm. kind of propelled them to the masses, like. People who hadn't heard of YouTube before, what you know, suddenly watched Lazy Sunday and then got onto YouTube, and and I think that was like their biggest sort of moment as a startup. Did did you have a moment like that where some document was suddenly read uh, more than any other document, and that's how you got up to you know all these views per month? Um, yes. I mean, there's there's been a lot of those. I think um, I, I think in our case though, I it, it's more about the um the the long tail and and just um you know we have this huge amount of content that just drives a lot of traffic uh but there's definitely some documents here and there there was like let's see like the the news about uh prop 8 on gay marriage i mean that pretty much uh broke on scribd i think that that document got uploaded to scribd and then just took off virally from there so that was huge um you know there's been we we've had uh you know we had an an author who uh, who published an essay on, on let's see, it was, a, I think it was an essay on the link between intelligence and happiness that went really viral on the web, and he became a minor celebrity due to this essay he published. I mean, we had things like that happen. So there's been, uh, you know, there's been moments or pieces of content really helped us get discovered. But I, I think in general it's more been the, the, the long tail of content and just kind of becoming embedded everywhere on the web. So I feel like, like with SlideShare, a very typical strategy that people use is, particularly when they're marketing something, is they'll upload a slide to SlideShare, and then if it's popular, um, they they get on SlideShare's list that goes e- email that goes out to their community of I don't know a million or so users, and and here's the most ten popular presentations of the week, and then that propels them to getting you know several hundred thousand views. Like I have some slides on SlideShare that have. Or some presentations on SlideShow that have, you know, hundreds of thousands of views. Does Scribd yep. Scribd have a similar type of uh, thing? Like, I, like I don't know why Sli- why SlideShare is where um, I've, you know, the people who help me with marketing have always encouraged me to use SlideShare to upload presentations. Like, is there does Scribd have a similar uh, thing? Yeah. So we we support presentations. Um, I think, um, you know, like I said before, SlideShare is really focused on presentations, and we focus more on long-form written content. And that's why we get more things like court filings and things like essays that people write. Um, So we we support presentations too, but it just just hasn't been the content focus. But, like, if I – let's say I had a court filing that I wanted people to look at. Wouldn't I just put it on my blog and then link people to it on my blog? Well, what a lot of people do is they'll they'll um, upload to Scribd and then they'll they'll embed it on their blog, because um, because you would need something to display the court filing because they're they're usually actual documents with formatting. I right? see. So so they're like uh, some sort of PDF or yeah, so they're a PDF. I mean, we're we're basically the 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 tool for putting that PDF on your blog. I see. Okay, and then I can embed it on my blog and and it's coming from Scribd, complete with exactly. the ads. Yeah. What's that? Also with the ads, like you get your ads in there? Uh, we don't put ads in the embedded documents. I see. So what's the benefit yeah. to you, just having the users and the traffic? It's just traffic, yeah. I mean, I mean, ultimately, our strategy is to drive subscriptions. So, 
so you know that 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 um, embedded court filing would link to our service, and then if you come to our service, we would then uh, try to convince you to get an 8.99 per month subscription to get access to this big library of content. Um, so I mean, ultimately, we're we're much more focused on subscriptions and ads. So so one time I started a company. Um, this was around 2006 or 2007, and I ran into Fred Wilson of all people, who's a venture capitalist in New York, mm-hmm. and he said the problem with first-time entrepreneurs when in their first companies um, is if somebody comes along and offers them $10 million, they can't really refuse it because they're going from having $0 in their bank to having millions of dollars. It's hard for young people to refuse it. So I'm sure when you were starting out this service and getting a lot of press, you must have had some initial offers for the business. Was this tempting to you or how did you deal with it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure that's true in some cases. I mean, I think that's becoming, um, less true. I mean, if you look at the, the current, uh, successful startups out there, there's a lot of these really valuable startups where the founders are not selling out. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the, the, the trend of just, you know, starting a company just for the sake of making money is, is kind of on the way out a little bit. And people are doing this more for other reasons, like just the, the thrill of building a company and changing the world and, Working with other good people and, and all those kinds of things. Um, so I'm I'm just you know much more motivated by by that latter set of things than than by money. So um, I mean if if you know if if you know we wanted to we can always focus more on just making money. I mean if if money were really my focus I'd probably go into a job like finance. Um, I think you make a lot more money doing that than than in startups. Uh, but you know I, I mean, I'm really building the company for other reasons. Well, I, I mean, I, look, I, as an investor, I hope you exit at some point. Like, do, do, do you see this as potentially an IPO eventually? Or, uh, like, what do you see as the future of the company? Yeah, I mean, uh, of course we want to make uh, returns for, for our investors. Uh, so it's a, it's a good point. And, um, I, I mean, I think, you know, we're uh, officially going to try to go for the IPO. I mean, we, we keep growing our, our revenue very steadily every year. And if we just keep doing that for another few years, I think we'd be in a – in a good position to, to go public. So, I mean, that's, that's the current plan. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, we're always, you know, um, you know, open to whatever's the best, the best strategy for the company and for our investors. So we're, you know, uh, looking at further options, but, um, I, I think an IPO would probably be our, our best path. Have you looked into, uh, yourself buying companies to expand your growth? Like for instance, buying something like a fanfiction.net or, or, or before it was acquired, buying DocStock. Yep. Um, yeah. I mean, we've we've looked into a few. Uh, there's been a couple uh, near acquisitions, but I don't think we've acquired anyone beyond like a one or two person talent acquisition yet. Um, and uh, there there might be some more in the future, um, but uh, we haven't done that yet. So so just in terms of like uh lessons you've learned like this is your your first big company what 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 would you say are like kind of the top 3 or 3 to 5 things you've learned as an entrepreneur in in starting this like you know how what would you do differently in other words Le- lessons are often things that we would do differently um let's see uh 3 to 5 things um I mean, I've learned the the importance of um, let's see the importance of focus. I mean, I think uh, you know focus is really important. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in the technology world, and um, especially when you have a large team of people, you need to kind of decide what you want to be and really um, you know get that team aligned around one singular direction. Um, I've learned the importance of communication. I mean, I think that's been a really important thing to learn as a CEO. I mean, I, I don't, um, you know, previously when I wasn't a CEO, didn't naturally communicate as frequently as you have to as a as a as a CEO. So I've I've gotten much better at just communicating in general and um, and you know trying to create really good communication across the company. Um, I've learned the importance of just uh, you know effort and determination. I mean, I think it, at the end of the day, I mean, that's really the the most important thing when you're building a company. I mean, the, the main reason why companies fail is because they, they give up. Um, I mean, a lot of founders will say, oh, we failed because, you know, someone else, you know, a big company launched a competitor, or we failed because you ran out of money. But maybe you don't really fail for those reasons. You fail because things just get hard and you don't, you don't power through. Um, so, uh, 
like so, in, yeah, in 2008, 2009, when it was a sort of uh, we were going through a economic collapse and it was hard to raise money. Were you scared then? Like, were you kind of financially flush then? Did you kind of uh, pave the way for disaster by raising money in advance or how did you survive that period? Yeah, we, we actually raised at like the, the single worst month of the collapse. Uh, so, um, so we did not time that fundraise very well. We still got a pretty good valuation um, at the time, but, but we didn't really time it very well. So, um, I mean, yeah, we've, we've never really um, uh, you know, concerned ourselves too much with these economic cycles. I mean, there's a lot of founders who you know, say, like, you, know, you, know, you want to start your company at like, the lowest point in the economic cycle and then sell at the high point. And, I mean, sure, you can, you can do that if, if that's what you want to do. But, I mean, we're fo- more focused on just building a good long-term company. Um, and, uh, I mean, as long as the company is self-sufficient, it doesn't really matter that much what's happening in the economy. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, for us, our toughest year was when we were, when we were not doing well financially. Um, but, um, you know, as long as we're making a profit and we have a a strategy, everything's going well here. I mean, it, it it will do great, um, regardless of what's happening with the economic cycles. And, and you don't see kind of, uh, Amazon, uh, necessarily encroaching on what you've already got. I mean, the one thing, the one thing you've got that Amazon doesn't is that, you you could build you you're the un you're the non Amazon like Amazon potentially has conflicts with publishers and you could say to the publishers hey come to us yeah I mean definitely publishers really like working with us we drive a lot of revenue we drive a whole new form of distribution and and they want more channels in the space and that's that's one of the big reasons why they work with us and I mean yeah I mean Amazon's gonna be competition but I mean if you're starting any company in any space there's gonna be competition from other other big companies. I mean, that's just the reality of building a business. And um, I mean, we're lucky we have a competitor who we respect a lot, which is Amazon. And and how do how do authors be- like how do the publishers and how do the authors benefit from your subscription model? Um, well, basically, uh, they contribute the content to our subscription, and then we uh, we pay them every single time a book is read. Um, so the way the way publishing used to work before before we came along with subscription was. Uh, they they would you know they would sell the the file and then as a user you would pay for access to you you would basically pay to own the file so you would give the publisher author money and then they give you a digital file um, we've switched it so that we what the consumer does is they pay for access to the library and then and then the publisher author gets paid every single time the file is actually read um, so we we've basically just switched it from an ownership model to an access model do the publishers get less money now. Uh, no, they get paid just like they would if they were selling the book. So it's it's we've we've basically on the publisher side preserved their business models as much as we possibly can, um, and then on the consumer side changed it from a la carte to subscription. Could, so you're taking risk in the middle, like potentially if everybody yes. becomes a voracious reader, could you lose money on that? Yeah. So so we so we're that exactly we're taking that risk as a company, and um, so far it's worked out really well. I mean, we do have. Some people who come along and will read a lot of books in one month, and, and we would lose money on that one user in that one month. But uh, to us, I mean, that's, that's usually an outlier. I mean, the average user is profitable for us, and, um, and you know, having those voracious readers are basically just the, the cost of acquiring new customers. So it's interesting. You probably have a lot of data about readership in the U.S. Like, how many books, how many books a year does the average reader read? Um, let's see. So the, the averages I've, I've heard based on studies, it's about, um, like the, the person who reads books reads about seven per year. Um, and our service is definitely higher because we're attracting, um, a group of, of power readers. Um, so in our service, the, the average reader is reading about a book a month. So about, about 12 per year. Um, but we're seeing a different slice of the country's readers. And 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 what do they like to read? Do they like romance more? Do they like fiction, nonfiction? Yeah. So um, romance and fiction have been the the two biggest verticals. Um, and within fiction, it's like uh, mystery and thrillers are also really big. Um, so, uh, but it's really been all over the place. I mean, we have a really big selection of uh, of business books and a lot of business readers. Um, we have a lot of cookbooks. Um, we have a partnership with Lonely Planet to provide all their travel books. So we have actually a really, a really neat app for traveling. I mean, every time I travel, I just, um, you know, download five books on the country I'm going to. And then as I'm traveling, I have 
um, five books on my phone for for traveling in that that country. Um, we have we have the Dummies series, so you can you can get reference books. Um, and we really have a, a very broad selection. Um, uh, but but you know, romance and fiction are probably the biggest so far. That's interesting. You have a Dummies book, so that's Wiley as the publisher. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you should do like a search engine over them. So, oh, I need help on like uh, I don't know neuroscience, and it takes me to Dummies for neuroscience. Yep, exactly. Yeah, and that, that's exactly um, exactly what we have actually. And and uh, I mean, what, what's cool is that we make that whole library of content available for just eight ninety nine per month. So so previously, if you wanted to get you know one chapter in the middle of the neuroscience book, um, you'd have to actually buy the whole book. Um, but now what you can do is you can just subscribe, and then you can you can look for the information within the book without having to purchase the entire book. Um, so it really does change the experience of accessing informational books like the Dummy series for for the reader. But for you, as soon as they look at the book, you have to pay Wiley. Uh, this book's been read. So so we actually do uh, different terms for nonfiction than for fiction. So fiction, it tends to either it's a it's a it's a binary system where it's either read or it's not because people read fiction from start to finish. Um, for nonfiction like Dummy series, people might want to get information out of one piece of the book. Um, so we have a concept of partial reads for nonfiction. So if you, let's say you want to get one recipe out of, out of a recipe book, um, you know, we wouldn't pay the publisher the entire price of the book for that, for that recipe book, but we would pay a fraction of the book for, for getting that value out of the book. Do you think Amazon has the same deal with nonfiction with publishers? Um, I mean, I, I don't know, but I, w- I would guess that they, I, I would guess they don't just because I don't think they've put the same focus into subscriptions that we have. Um, but I, I really just don't know. So, and, and right now it's just all text content on your site. Like you wouldn't do, uh, audio or anything like that. Uh, we have a, a lot of plans on, uh, in the works to do stuff like that. So, um, there will you be some podcasts. announcements in the next few months. So. You should do. Uh, you should do. You should have like your own podcast app. Uh, yeah, no. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff we can do. I think. Um, you know, I, I don't think we're gonna go uh, into like movies or, or music or anything like that. But there's other types of content that are close to books and written content that I think would align really well with our user base um, and with the technology platform we built. So, um, so there's there's yeah, we have a lot of stuff in the works. We're gonna have a. Uh, a huge series of announcements over the next uh, six months or so. Oh well, that's great. So, so uh, new products or new services or? Um, yeah, I mean uh, uh, a combination of new products and and just new deals. I mean we have a lot of really large content deals in the works. So, so our our five hundred thousand books is going to expand quite a bit over the next few months, um, and we will have some some new products coming out to better support the needs of our readers. And do you think it's true that, like, with all this content out there, like, a lot of people have a hard time reading a book because while you're reading, it's like every five minutes you check your Twitter feed, you check your Facebook feed, you check your emails. Um, do you think, are are more people reading books every year or are less people reading books every year? Um, I, I don't know the, uh, what the, what the averages are, um, you know, in, in just the, the general world, but um, I, I definitely think we're in a position to get people reading more. Um, I mean, really, our, uh, I mean, our, what, what we're doing is getting people to read more. What, once you subscribe to our service, I mean, it's just there's so much less friction to getting into a new book that people end up do reading more. I mean, we have data that shows that people buying books in our service read a certain amount, and then once they subscribe, they start reading a lot more. Um, so, um, I think that, you know, we're in a position to get people to read more. And, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing that subscriptions have come to books later than when they came to music or to video. Um, so I, I think it's time that this kind of service exists in the book space. And I think that, um, you know, as long as we keep adding books and improving the user experience, um, I mean, we can really make an impact on just the amount that people generally read. Well, uh, everything sounds great. So congratulations on, I mean, this is your, your first startup, but seven years in, it's like you're profitable, you're growing, things are, are exciting. Have you, um, uh, uh, I mean, I'm sure people have, have you been able to benefit financially in any way? Like, or are you kind of in there for the long haul? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm doing. I, I'm really am in it for the long haul, but I mean, I'm I'm doing fine financially. I mean, the uh, I do get paid a salary here. You know, I'm, I'm and you know, we we do have enough revenue that I I, I could uh, you know pay myself well enough to you know own a car and and all that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, so I mean, I'm doing fine financially. I, I don't think uh, you have to worry about me. Uh, <laughs> and, Always checking. Uh, but but I'm definitely in it for the long haul. And at the end of the day, I mean, my my goal. Um, you know, is is just to build a great company and a, and a great product, uh, not so much to make money for myself. And now I do want to make money for our investors. I mean, that's a very important uh, parallel goal. So so we're going to make you as our investor quite a bit of money. But um, but I mean, that's you know, really the the first goal is just to build a great company. Well, congratulations again, and uh, thanks for coming on this podcast. I really appreciate it and enlightening us on the publishing world and the state of entrepreneurship and uh, you know, good luck with everything. Great. Thank you. Um, okay, great th- talking to you. Yeah. Thanks trip. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher show on the Stansberry radio network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.